I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 15, if you have your Bible. <clears throat> so either take your Bible out or switch your Bible on. I, I was intrigued, and those who put up things in PowerPoint need to be aware that some of us, some of us have, have wandering minds. And uh, there, was a little, there was a little notice was put up earlier on to, to get you to shush your, your mobile phone. My, I mean, I have no problem with doing that. My problem was I was looking at all the icons and looking at all the apps that were on the phone that was in the photograph and beginning to wonder what they all, what they all were. Um, I haven't installed any of them yet. Maybe I'll check some of them out later. John 15, and uh, we're going to read from the beginning of the chapter uh, through to the early part of chapter 16. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know me, they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also." If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father, uh, now, that, now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Amen. I encourage you to have your Bible open as we reflect on, on these verses. Uh, a number of years ago, I heard uh, someone, uh, a pastor, talking about one of his early experiences of pastoral visitation. And he'd been a, a young assistant pastor. Uh, some of you know who this is. You may have heard the story. Uh, but he'd been, a, he'd been a young assistant pastor, and he'd gone to visit a lady in the congregation in the church where he was working. Uh, she'd set him down in the dining room in her little house, and uh, she'd uh, gone into the kitchen to, to make a cup of tea. And while she'd gone into the kitchen to make a cup of tea, he couldn't help notice that in the dining room, just beside him, within easy reach, uh, there was a table, and on the table, there was a bowl of fruit. And among the fruit, he saw this uh, wonderful-looking apple. Couldn't help himself. So he reached out and took the apple and took a bite, only to discover that what he had bitten into was actually a wax apple. Um, now, you expect a preacher to tell a story like that and then to make a point, and there is, of course, a point. Uh, it's possible to have stuff that looks like fruit, but it's not. Uh, it's only fruit if it's the result of life and if it's come as a result of connection to the tree on which it's been growing. All that by way of, or that little story, just by way of introducing us to John chapter 15. This comes uh, right in the middle of um, a discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples. Uh, we tend to call it the farewell discourse. It really begins in chapter 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and it ends in chapter 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples. And in between, he's got things that he needs to tell them because he's leaving them. He's going to be crucified. He's going to leave them. So he tells them that he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to come and receive them again. He tells them that he's not going to leave them alone. He's not going to abandon them, but he's going to send another comforter, he calls him, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and be with them. He tells them that he's going to send them into the world. They can expect the world will be hostile. And yet he's sending them there as witnesses. And they're not to be afraid. Because despite the hostility of the world, he says, he has overcome the world. And so he promises peace and he promises joy. And right in the middle of that uh, comes this teaching that, that we've just read, this section that we've read, chapter 15 and into the beginning of chapter 16. And what I want to do this morning is really just give you a quick overview of uh, what seemed to me to be three themes of discipleship that, that really come out of these verses, really in chapter 15. And they've all got to do with, the, with some dimension of relationship that the followers of Jesus are called to. First of all, uh, in the first part of chapter 15, from verse 1 down to verse 11, the emphasis there is on the relationship that Jesus calls his disciples into with himself. It's the relationship of a disciple with Jesus. And the key word that he gives is the word abide or the word remain, another way of translating it. And the image is the image of the, of the branch that remains in the vine. The second relationship, which uh, he discusses from verse 12 to verse 17, these sections are not watertight, by the way. 
uh, but, but they're, they're reasonably, uh, reasonably clearly defined, I think. From verse uh, 12 to verse 17, the relationship that he talks about there is the relationship that the disciples are to have among one another. And the key, relationship, the key word in that relationship is the word love. He says, you're to love one another. And then from uh, verse 18, really down into the beginning of chapter 16, he talks about the relationship with the, that the disciples are going to have with the world out there, the people who are not believers in God. And the key word that I would highlight that comes towards the end of chapter 15 uh, that describes the relationship that the disciples have with the world is the word witness. And I think we're called uh, to follow in the footsteps of these disciples, and we're called into these three relationships as well if we're followers of the Lord Jesus. A relationship with Jesus, which is characterized by remaining in Him. A relationship with one another, which is characterized by loving one another. And a relationship with the world that is characterized by our witness. So let me just uh, take a few moments on each of these uh, and uh, paint a little bit of a picture. Hopefully you stimulate some of your own thinking and you can go back and, and think some more of the detail of it. Jesus says that his disciples are to remain in him. And he's talking about this imagery of the vine and the branches. It's not the first time that this image comes up in the Bible. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly well-known image in the Old Testament uh, where God is thinking about his people. And one of the notable chapters that discusses it is actually Isaiah chapter 5. And that's a kind of lament. It's a lament for a vineyard. And the picture is God, who is the owner of the vineyard, and his people who are the vineyard. And God comes to his people, as a, as a vineyard owner would come to the vineyard, he comes to, to see what kind of fruit has been produced. And in the picture, the vineyard owner comes to the, the, the vineyard and discovers that instead of sweet, edible grapes, what he finds is that the vineyard has produced bitter grapes. And that's translated through the prophet Isaiah to say that as God comes and looks at his Old Testament people, Israel, instead of seeing justice and righteousness, the kind of fruit that would please God and would benefit other people, what God discovers is bitter fruit of unrighteousness and, and injustice. Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament people of God, were called to be a vine, and yet often failed to be the kind of vine that God wanted them to be. So when Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser, it's not just that he's walked out onto the street and he's seen a, a, a vine growing at the side of the street and thought, oh, here's a good opportunity for me to teach my disciples an object lesson. Jesus, in all likelihood, is thinking about that Old Testament image, and he's making a claim, and he's saying that everything that Old Testament Israel was meant to be the life that they were meant to produce that would please God and bring blessing to other people, but they failed to do it, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he says to his disciples, you are the branches. Now, it's very important to notice exactly what he says there. He is the vine. His disciples are the branches. He does not say to his disciples, 
you are the true vine. He could have said that. If he had said that, it would have changed the meaning of this quite considerably. Because at that point, what he would have been saying would have been, there's a vine in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God. They haven't done everything that they should have done. Now, gentlemen, speaking to his disciples, ladies and gentlemen, speaking to all of us, now it's over to you. If he'd said that, there's absolutely no guarantee that we would have any, had any more success than they had. That when God would come looking at our lives, he would see anything different from what he'd seen in the Old Testament. But by saying that he is the vine and we are the branches, Jesus is changing the focus. He is saying that the life is in him and our responsibility is not to try to produce fruit all by ourselves. Our responsibility is to ensure that we are in a living, ongoing relationship with him. And he promises us that if we remain in a living, ongoing relationship with him, that we will bear fruit. Sometimes in our kind of church traditions, evangelical church traditions, we put a lot of emphasis on starting the Christian life. It's not wrong that we do it. It's right that we do it. And we think of how Jesus called disciples to follow him. <clears throat> or we think of how some of the, the apostles in the book of Acts preached and called on people to repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And those are vital messages. And maybe sometimes we don't emphasize them the way we should anymore, the way we used to. It's vital that we emphasize those messages. But at the same time, I think a passage like John 15 tells us that we need to realize that Jesus is not just our means of getting started on the Christian life, a Savior to whom we come at the beginning of the Christian life who forgives our sins. But Jesus is a, a Lord with whom we continue the Christian life. We don't just come to Him once at the start, but we remain in relationship with Him all the way through our Christian experience. There's a little book that was written by an American pastor, and it's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Um, it's about Christian assurance. Uh, I'll, I'll not take time to go into too much of the detail about it, but the, the, the guy who wrote it, his name is J.D. Greer. Uh, he's writing about Christian assurance, and he tells a story in his book about a young guy that he met one time playing basketball. It's, it's in America, and everybody plays basketball in America. Uh, that's why I'm not American. I wouldn't have had the height for it. Um, but he's, he was playing just a pickup basketball game, and there was this young guy who was, was playing basketball, and they got to know each other, and they got talking, and, and J.D. Greer, uh, being a pastor and an evangelistic interest and so on, began to talk a little bit about faith, and the young guy said, I said, I, I know what you're doing here. You're, you're witnessing to me, aren't you? He thought, interesting, he's got the lingo. And he discovered the story of this young guy. And the story was that uh, when he'd been a, a young teenager, He'd been part of a church, and on a particular occasion, he'd prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. He'd become part of the youth group. He'd done scripture memorization. He'd done mission trips. He'd done all of those kinds of things, you know, just looked like a great little Christian. And then as he began to get older, he began to discover temptation. And temptation started to tug at him, and he started to find that he, was, that he enjoyed giving in to some of the temptations that came, that came his way. 
And he discovered that actually, as he gave way to some of these temptations, it was quite helpful for him to put God on pause. You know, hit the pause button with God and just leave him out of the picture for a while. And eventually, having left God out of the picture for a while, God was out of the picture completely. And he described himself as an atheist. But he said to J.D. Greer that he was a happy atheist. And the reason why he was happy, now you need to follow this. There's a logic to it, but it's a weird logic. The reason he was happy, he said, was because the church where he had prayed that prayer to accept Jesus was a church that taught once saved, always saved. So he said, if I come to the end of my life as an atheist and I discover that I've made a mistake, my atheism was wrong and there is a God after all, well, he said, I'm still okay, haven't I? Because once saved, always saved. Now, you see, there's a really bizarre logic about that, but there is a logic. You know, he reckoned he could live whatever way he wanted. He could live as an atheist. He could shut God out of his life, comes to the end of his life, and, well, do you know that little decision that he made? Well, that, that holds, doesn't it? He obviously hadn't read much about John chapter 15 because what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you don't just start. You remain in me. It's a call to go on believing. It's a call to go on trusting. It's a call to go on depending. It's a call to go on obeying. We do not just come to Jesus at the beginning of a Christian life. We remain in Jesus. We go on trusting and obeying Him. And He gives the promise that whoever remains in Him will bear much fruit. Fruit is the evidence of His work in us and through us. It's possible that some of our lives can be adorned with plastic apples and plastic oranges. But Jesus promises us that if we will dwell in Him, we will bear much fruit. That's the first relationship, the relationship between the disciples and Jesus. Remain in me, He says. Second relationship is the relationship that the disciples are to have with one another. And the key word is that they're to love one another. So if you look at verse 13, verse 12, sorry, uh, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Some of you probably saw, I, I personally didn't, didn't see this uh, documentary the other night, um, but uh, some of you probably saw the documentary about Bob McAllister, the, the missionary who, from County Armagh, uh, who was back visiting the Congo 50 years after uh, the massacre of, of some of his colleagues there. Um, and it's actually quite remarkable, and, and uh, it's a wonderful thing that on our national broadcaster, there's a, a program like that, which I understood gave a tremendous testimony of a man's faith in God and, 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 his, and his work with God. And it's great to see that, you know, Christianity can get that kind of press, if I can put it like that which of course doesn't always happen. And if you cast your mind back over the past months or the past year or two, and think about some of the stories involving churches that have made the front pages of, say, the Belfast Telegraph or have made it onto the news, it's really not those kind of stories, is it? It's stories about churches that uh, people have fallen out so severely that uh, the police have to come and stand in a car park. It's stories about... Uh, people throwing water over press photographers who've come to, to see what happens as a church splits. Sadly, sometimes we are known 
for the wrong kind of things. Jesus actually says, he talks about it in a couple of other places in this farewell discourse, in chapter 13 and in chapter 17. He talks about the love that his disciples would have for one another being a kind of distinguishing mark. He says in chapter 13, here's how all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, some of us would be much more comfortable with that if it was, here's how everybody will know that you're my disciples. It's if you have sorted out the fine points of eschatology, or if you have your doctrine of the atonement uh, absolutely correct. That's how all people will know that you're my disciples. But Jesus doesn't say that. And he actually gives us something that is a much more challenging and a much more difficult thing. He says, here's how all people will know that you're my disciples. He says, they'll know it if you love one another. And the reason he chooses that particular quality as the distinguishing mark of his disciples, I think is very straightforward. It is because that was the distinguishing mark that he carried. God is love, and his love is expressed through Jesus. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, if you really are my disciples, if you've really learned from me, and if you've really become like me, then you will love one another. And when people look at you, and they see the way that you love one another, and they hear that you talk about me, and they know that I am love, well, they'll see the connection. And, you know, quite honestly, we've got to give people a bit of I suppose, a bit of a Bible in a, in, in a way if they get a little confused on us at times. When we preach about a Jesus who's full of mercy and kindness and who is loving and who is forgiving, and yet we turn around and we behave among ourselves in a way that's completely different. And you can forgive people for saying, well, which picture am I meant to believe? This is what you're telling me Jesus is like, this is what I see you behaving like. Well, and you tell me you belong to Jesus, and you tell me you're, you're like Jesus, and you're following Jesus. It doesn't add up. And so Jesus says to his disciples, here's how people will know. And he says, I'm giving you this new commandment. It's a new community that's being established, a new dimension of love that Jesus is introducing. Here's this new commandment, that you would love one another as I have loved you. One of the people that this made a huge impact on was John the disciple, the, the gospel writer, and the writer of, of the, the, the little epistles at the end of the New Testament. Uh, if you read 1 John, actually it's interesting to see there are several of the themes that come from these chapters that reappear in John's first letter. But one of the things that John was very big on and was obviously very impressed by what Jesus said here was this idea of loving one another. And he talks about it in his letter. And there is a tradition that says that when John was older, this is not in the Bible, but the tradition says that when John was older and was quite infirm, and he was no longer able to, to walk into the, the, the church meetings, they used to carry him in on, on Sunday morning. They would carry him in on a Sunday, and they would set him down, and they would wait to hear what he was going to have to say to them. And he would say to them, little children, love one another. And the next week, it would be exactly the same thing. And the next, thing he, the next week, it would be exactly the same thing. And eventually, they got a little weary of it. And some of them said to him, well, John, is there anything else that you would like to tell us? You know, we tell us this all the time. Why do you keep telling us the same thing? And he said to them, well, 
part of, part of what he said to them was this. He said, if this only is done, it is enough. I think that's a stunning thing, isn't it? When you, when you think about that, if this only is done, it is enough. If you're only going to get one thing right, let it be this. If you're only going to get one thing right in your practice as a church, let it be that, that you love one another. Jesus gives it as a commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It is a commandment that he gives. We're to love as he has loved us, and he gives examples of his love. There's the foot washing in chapter 13 that, uh, that you can take time to look at that. It's an example of his humble love, which I think in turn, as he washed the feet of his disciples, I think in turn was was looking ahead to to the spiritual cleansing that he was going to bring about when he was going to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross. And actually, he says to us, to his disciples, and then to us, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You can't read that without thinking ahead to the the closing chapters of the gospel, a little later where, where he does, in fact, lay down his life for his friends. And you think to yourself, well, what, what might that mean for his disciples? And you realize that, you know, maybe there are comparatively few of us who are called upon to sacrifice our life in some dramatic, heroic act for our brothers and sisters. And yet it seems to me there's more than one way of laying down your life in sacrifice, isn't there? Think about money. Let's say that someone gives you a thousand pounds. Now, you can blow it all at once. You go to the Apple store. You can blow it all at once, once and, and still need to pay some more. But you can just, all at once, it, it could go. Or you could take that thousand pounds and you could spend it a little bit here on this and a little bit there on that and a little bit somewhere else and a little bit somewhere else. And you could, you know, it could go on for quite a while and, and be spent in, in, in various things and in different directions. And it seems to me that the idea of laying down your life is a similar thing, isn't it? Sometimes laying down your life for some people means that one-off sacrifice of everything at one moment. And yet I wonder, and it seems that, that maybe at times what many of us are called to is not so much to lay down our life all at one go, but maybe it's in 15-minute segments, and your phone rings, and you see the name of the person who's on the phone, and you know that you spoke to them two days ago, and you know that today they're probably just going to tell you the same thing that they told you two days ago, and you don't answer your phone. Or you choose to answer it, and you know that you're going to give that 15 minutes. It's part of laying down your life. Or there's that older person who maybe needs someone to drive them to the hospital, and it's going to take a couple of hours out of your day and, and you give that time. You had other ideas and other plans of things you could have done, but you, you, you give that time. And so it's 15 minutes here, and it's two hours there, and it's an afternoon there, and it's a weekend there, little bit by little bit by little bit. It's, this is where the rubber meets the road, I think, for most of us, isn't it? This is the kind of sacrifice laying down our lives that Jesus doesn't just suggest that we do, but he actually commands us to do. The relationship that we have with one another to love one another. Final thing is the relationship with the world. John talks about the world a lot. The Greek word is cosmos. It appears in his gospel 
uh, more than 70 times. It hardly occurs in any of the other Gospels, but John writes about it again and again and again. And some of the verses are well known to us. John 3.16, here's how God loved the world, that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Or when John the Baptist sees Jesus in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And part of what uh, John talks about in relation to the world is this, this whole mass of people whom God loves and, and, and for whom He sent Jesus to take away their sin. But yet, the other theme that, that, that comes through very much in, in, in John is, is that this world that God loves is actually hostile to God. And Jesus says, in, in verse, uh, back in, in verse 18, chapter 15, here He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And Jesus actually warns His disciples that they can expect to face hostility in the world. We cannot expect them to treat us any differently from the way they treated Jesus. And throughout these chapters, here in chapter 15, and again in chapter uh, 17, where he prays to his Father about his disciples, he says this, he says, listen, my disciples are in the world, but they're not actually of the world. He says, I've chosen them from the world, so they don't really belong anymore, but I have not taken them out of the world, you know, like monastics off to a desert somewhere. I haven't done that. He says, I've chosen them from the world so they don't really belong to the world anymore, but instead of taking them out of the world and putting them in isolation, I've sent them back into the world. And the reason he says I've sent them back into the world is that they've gone, they've gone as my witnesses. And so he talks at the end of chapter 15 about the Holy Spirit who will be a witness, one of a line of witnesses in John's gospel, by the way, and then he says to his disciples, and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You've heard that old Francis of Assisi saying, haven't you? You know, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I have two problems with it. Number one is that he didn't actually say it. Uh, he actually said something slightly different. Uh, he was speaking to uh, the, the brothers who, who followed him who were part of his community. Some of them and this is the setting of the time. This is the reality of it. Some of them were licensed to preach. They were officially licensed preachers. And what I understand that he actually said was, those of you who are officially licensed preachers, preach with words. But all of you preach with your lives. It's slightly different. The other, hang the other problem I have with it is that at the end of the day, you can't preach the gospel without words. You can illustrate the gospel without words. You can live out the implications of the gospel without words. But if the gospel is, and this is what I believe it is, if the gospel is the announcement of the good news of what God has done through Jesus, sooner or later you're going to have to use words to say what happened, right? You can live out its implications. Your life can be gospel-shaped. People can see the impact that it's made on you, but sooner or later you've actually got to tell people about Jesus. And so he says to the disciples, you will bear witness. They've seen something and heard something, and what they have seen and heard, they're to tell. So it is with us. Being a witness is those of us who have heard and experienced telling others what we have heard and experienced. And we do it with words. 
But at the same time, it connects back to what we've just talked about, about the relationship the disciples have between one another. Because Jesus says in his prayer for his disciples in chapter 17, verse 21, he prays there that they, may all may be, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. There's that relationship with Jesus, that they may be in us and that they may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I pastored in Switzerland for 17 years in an international church between Geneva and Lausanne. One of our elders uh, is a man called Alfredo Zingali. You can tell he's not Irish with, his name, with a name like that. It would have to be, Alf well, it could be Alfred Zingali, I suppose, but it's Alfredo. He's Italian, Alfredo Zingali. And early on when I went to Switzerland, Alfredo told me his story of coming to faith. Um, it was very interesting. He hadn't grown up in a family of faith. Um, but he'd actually come to faith in the Lord Jesus um, as a young man in, in, in adulthood. And he told me that part of the reason that he had seriously considered Christianity was because he looked at the Christians that he knew and he saw the love that they displayed. And that was so powerful that it led him to become convinced of the reality of the message that they, that they preached. One Sunday I was preaching about fellowship and I told his story. I didn't name him. I just said, you know, one of our elders, and this is his story, so on and so on, told the story just as I've told you. At the end of the service, another one of our elders, and we only had about five elders, so it's not that we had, you know, hundreds of elders or, or something like that, but we don't need about five elders. But at the end of the service, another one of the elders, a guy called Simon Stewart, came up to me, English guy, came up to me and he said, so I guess you were talking about me then when you told that story. And I wasn't, I hadn't realized. But there you had two, but 40% of our elders who'd come to faith in, in young adulthood, well, as, as young men in, in adulthood, and a big part of why they had taken seriously the claims of Jesus Christ was because as they looked at the Christians they knew, they could see the, the love that they had and the love that they had for one another. And a big part of our witness has got to be this. This is why the stakes in this are so high. A big part of our witness is this. You know, as Jesus sends us into the world as witness, uh, to, be, to be witnesses, he sends us in to live out this, this life of a community, a community that loves one another. A community that is the individuals are connected to Jesus, a relationship where his life is flowing into them and flowing through them. And where his love for them as individuals is then expressed in their love that they have for one another. And he says, you know, as, as you go into a world that he promises will be hostile, he says, as you do that, there are going to be people who will believe, you, you believe in me because of your witness. And one of the ways they're going to know that you are the real deal is because you love one another. And that's the challenge that I leave us with this morning. What kind of image do we portray? You know, it's nice to think about 
church fellowship, and I think of that little rhyme that says, to dwell above with saints we love, that surely will be glory. To live below with saints we know is quite a different story. And of course, it works its way out in the relationships that we have, and it's good to think about church fellowship and so on. But hopefully what you see this morning here is that the relationships that you have as a church fellowship, it's not just about having a nice church. It's not just about having a nice church fellowship. It's to be a witness declaring the reality of Jesus. A people in relationship with him remaining, bearing fruit. People in relationship with each other, loving. And that spills over as you become then a people in relationship with the world as witnesses who see Jesus in us.